All right, well, I hope you have your Bibles, so let's go ahead and turn in them to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And also, while you have the moment, take in Mark, Revelation 19, because we'll be looking at that also this morning. But this morning, we pick it up in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 24. So let's uh, check it out together. Therefore, they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there is eagles. Uh, there the eagles will gather together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and will gather together his elect from all from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other for the christian the idea and the notion the understanding of the second coming of jesus christ is a cornerstone fundamental foundational uh, doctrine for us paul calls it the blessed hope that we as christians have knowing that our Savior is going to return. And yes, I'm talking about the physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. We call it the second coming. The Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, if you look through the New Testament letters in almost every single one of them, there is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. It is our hope. Unfortunately, many churches seem to be shying away from this discussion for one reason or another. I just recently saw someone this week on, on the internet who said that they shy away from eschatology, the study of the last days, because it's scary to them. No, I don't think we should be scared by the second coming. I think we should be prepared for the second coming. And not only prepared, but motivated. John told us in his first epistle that those who have the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ prepare themselves by living in concordance with the Scriptures, in holiness, full-on surrendered to Jesus Christ for the purpose of glorifying Him in the new life that He has, been, that he has granted us. But it should also motivate us each and every day, knowing that the time here on this earth grows shorter. If our life isn't interrupted by the Lord's coming, then we know that we have a finite number of years to occupy here on this earth. And this earth isn't you know, everything. It is a temporal moment in our existence in comparison with the incredible idea of eternity with God. So let us know and understand that when we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is a blessed hope to all of us. Also, let us understand that we shouldn't be scared by this, but prepared and motivated as we live in the idea of the imminent return of our Savior. Today we get to that portion of Matthew 24 where Jesus specifies his second coming. This is it. This is the event that John then articulates for us further in Revelation chapter 19. This is it. This is what we have all been waiting for. If you look back with me in chapter 24 to verse 3, everything that Jesus says in this chapter is an answer to the questions posed to him by his disciples. In verse 3, he says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? 
Now, the first question refers to the destruction of the temple, as he predicted in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. And in 70 AD, that destruction occurred. But then they went on to ask him a second question in two parts. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And this is the question that Jesus concentrates on as he then begins to answer them directly concerning his second coming. In the Bible, there were 333 prophecies concerning his first coming. There are over 600 prophecies concerning his second. The Bible has a lot to say about the days that that, uh, immediately precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. But let's be honest. The last few years, I think, have set all of our hearts in motion. Our minds wandering and wondering and pondering the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. For so many, it seems unfathomable that we would even consider Jesus returning for his church and the rapture of the church during our lifetime. And yet we see sign after sign, we see event after event, we see concern after concern in the world around us that keep pushing us to consider that thought in even a greater fashion. Let's be honest, coming out of the pandemic and then going into the Russian invasion, that's a lot for anyone to handle, isn't it? People are asking questions like never before. They want to know what's going to happen next. Is this biblically significant? People have found in the last two years as we've gone through the COVID pandemic together that many of the institutions that we trusted and relied upon are no longer reliable institutions. They no longer deserve our trust because we've been lied to so many times by so many people. We don't know who or what to believe, do we? And that leaves us in a very vulnerable position because as a result, we feel like we're being tossed to and fro by every ounce of information that we hear. We don't know what to believe. And even now, there are questions to what we are actually seeing there in Europe with the invasion of Ukraine. What exactly is happening? What exactly is occurring? Why did he do it? Is it simply that he's a madman, hungry for power, or was there even more to it? Time will tell. But as a result, all of us, I feel, have a sense of insecurity, and that's what I find in many in whom I'm witnessing to, that I'm sharing with, that I'm introducing to Jesus. They're concerned. They're insecure. They they don't know what to do next. And in many cases, fear has gripped their hearts. And that fear is holding them back from embracing the life in which they have. The second coming of Jesus Christ begins in verse 27. In verse 26, he, he tells them very clearly that if individuals tell you to look in certain places for the return of Jesus Christ, for example, he, Jesus Christ has come back and here he is in Crystal Lake. Just write it off. Nope, not happening. In fact, there have been accounts throughout history of individual religious groups claiming that Jesus Christ has returned. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses have claimed that Jesus Christ has returned and he was held up in a home in San Francisco. Trust me, that's not where Jesus would live. (laughs) No, when he returns, the world's going to know it. It's not going to be this subtle, surprising event. It's not going to blindside anyone in the sense that uh, they didn't see it, for they will see it. It'll be a worldwide event, and that's what's specified in verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. When my wife and I got married, my dad treated us for our honeymoon, a Caribbean cruise. It was, it was incredible. 
My dad had been so cheap his whole entire life, and he finally ponies up all at one time. I forgave him. But I'll tell you, we were blessed to have a window in our cabin. And one night, as we were trying to fall asleep, we couldn't because there was a lightning storm above the ship. And we began to look through the window, and we couldn't believe how illuminating that lightning was over the ocean and how far we could see. And it certainly showed the lightning streaks across the skies. And it was incredible. It seemed like the sky was just going to tear open at that moment. And so Jesus aligning himself with this imagery says, the whole world is going to know when I return. It's not going to be some secret event. The whole world will know it. And they will be confident of it. As Zacharias wrote, he said in Zechariah 9.14, should be on the screen behind you, then the Lord will be seen over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpet and go with the whirlwind from the south. It's going to be a worldwide event when Jesus returns. And then he goes on to state it in a proverbial saying that they would have been familiar with in their time. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man for whenever... Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Of course, when they saw carnivorous birds circling above, they knew that a carcass of something was on the ground that they desired. It was a sign, a symbol that could be seen from a distance and they would know that something had taken place there. That's what Jesus is saying here. That when he, re- when he returns, the whole world will know it, no matter where they are on the earth. That's something to consider in and of itself. And then in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what days? That seven-year period of time that Revelation outlines for us from chapters uh, 6 to 19. The first three and a half years of those, of, of those years will seem to have a pseudo-peace. There will appear to be peace, but the underlying foundations of it will be turmoil. The Antichrist will have risen to power. He will seem to have political answers, medical answers, religious answers, scientific answers that the world has always wanted and desired. But then something happens at the three and a half year point of that seven year period where it appears that he would be assassinated and then come back to life. A resurrection, if you will, of sorts. And the world will believe in him in an astonishing way. But the Bible tells us is at that point that Satan inhibits him. He inhabits him and he uses him and he deceives the world and the world is plunged into a time that the world has never seen before the time of Jacob's trouble the great tribulation period it's going to be horrific on the earth during that time but at the end of it all in Revelation 19 the Lord returns John's depiction of the Lord's return summarizes why Jesus is our hope. In that depiction, which you may have seen paintings of or pictures drawn, in that description gives us the reasoning for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But notice what he says here. After the days of the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, this language would have been very familiar to the disciples as Jewish individuals. They would have been familiar with it because of its occurrence throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 13, 9-10, Isaiah writes, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be darkened, 
and it's going for, and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine and then he continues as we see in Daniel the sign of his coming as this describes in Joel and in Daniel notice what he says in verse 3 I'm 30 excuse me then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory what is this sign that Jesus refers to well there's debate Some believe it's going to be reminiscent of the Shekinah glory that they experienced in the Old Testament. The light and the presence of God there found in the temple of God there in Jerusalem. That's very possible. Others believe that it is simply His return in and of itself, the event of His return itself that He is referring to as this sign. For example, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel writes, he says, I was watching in the the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Matthew, in Matthew 17.5, earlier on in this gospel, he writes, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out uh, out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And then when He ascended into heaven, in Acts 1.11, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come like the manner in which you saw Him go into heaven. So there's support for both ideas. Is it a combination of both ideas? Again, they wanted to know, what is the sign of your coming? Now, Zechariah tells us very clearly that at this moment in time, all the earth will mourn seeing the one in whom they have pierced. For Joel writes in Joel 2, 30-31, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now all of this culminates in the book of Revelation. And this event is clearly articulated in Revelation chapter 6 verse 12. Notice with me. And I looked and when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake. And the sun and the moon became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth. As a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of his place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is the culmination of all the events of the Bible up until that moment. Everything that the Bible had promised, Old Testament and New Testament alike, will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the wrath of God is not something we really want to consider, is it? Of course, we believe that God is truly a God of love and demonstrated that love through the sending of His only Son, Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went on to say after that, though, He says, Please know this, I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. For the world is condemned already. 
The only way to escape the wrath of God is through Jesus Christ. For those hours of darkness that he experienced on the cross was God the Father pouring the wrath, his wrath upon his Son. That whomsoever believes in him, that wrath, that judgment has occurred on the shoulders of the Son and we are therefore in him and he has bore that judgment for us. That's darkness, that separation, that death that Jesus Christ experienced is destined for each and every person who stands before God apart from Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, it says very clearly that everyone will stand before God, Christ on the throne, and the books shall be open. Every thought, every deed, every word that they've ever said recorded in those books. And apart from Jesus Christ, they will have to try to uh, elevate their righteousness to allow them to enter into the kingdom of God. But that is absolutely impossible to do. For the standard is perfection. And that perfection is found in Jesus Christ. And not only does Christ forgive us of our sins, but after forgiving us of our sins, He then clothes us with His righteousness that we may stand before the Father as one perfect, even though we know that that perfection had nothing to do with our merit or our good works, but only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the days prior to the return of Jesus, the Lord pours this world into a time of judgment like has never been seen before. I can see why some would say this is scary, that this is concerning. But for you and I who are Christians, this is the the culmination of everything we've waited for, everything that we have hoped for, everything that we have endured suffering for, all comes to conclusion in this moment of Jesus's personal, physical return to this earth. And notice with me as you come to verse 31. And in Christ's return, he talks about in verse 30, the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Who are in these clouds? And what are these clouds consisting of? Well, Revelation tells us it's us returning with him for the purpose of setting up his kingdom here on this earth. And at that moment he will call all to himself in verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. At the return of Jesus Christ, all of those uh, Jewish individuals specifically will be called from the ends of the earth to return to enter into the millennial kingdom. I do not believe that verse 31 is articulating the rapture of the church. There are many trumpets in the Bible. And though the rapture of church is, uh, is signified by a trumpet, there are many trumpets, and trumpets had many different reasons for being blown. Many different purposes. But the Bible tells us that those who are in Christ have not been appointed to wrath. Meaning, God has settled the wrath in Christ, and therefore there is, there is no necessity for us to go through the tribulation period. That's why I believe that it's so important that you get saved now. Because if you can't live for Christ now, how will you ever die for Him then? Because that's what it will take. If you choose not to show your allegiance and give your allegiance to the Antichrist... Aren't you glad we deal with light topics here on Sunday morning? If you decide not to give your allegiance to the Antichrist, it will result in the taking of your own life. They will execute you for not doing so. Heavy stuff. But as the Son of Man returns, all the world will see Him. And that brings us to Revelation 19, if you'll turn with me there. And in verse 11, the actual event is outlined for us. 
described for us by John. In verse 11, he writes, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The depiction that John gives us in these various different manners in which he describes Jesus at his coming were to articulate the hope or to expound upon the hope or give us reason for the hope that we have in His blessed return, in the blessed hope of His return. So what is it exactly that is fulfilled here at this moment? Well, it begins with the riding of the white horse. This was significant. It means that He's coming back to wage war, to set things right to take things back, to conquer evil, to conquer the devil, to conquer sin and death once and for all. If you remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was coming to his people in peace. That's what it symbolized when a king would ride on a donkey. It, came, it meant to say, I'm coming in peace and I desire to have a relationship with you. But they rejected him. They cried for Barabbas rather than for Christ. They then crucified him. And then, of course, on the third day, God showed us all that he, Jesus was exactly who he said he was. But the second coming of Jesus Christ is much different. Unlike the coming of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 6, now we have the coming of Jesus Christ here in Revelation 19. And on the white horse, he comes back to claim what is truly His. As man sinned from the very beginning, we gave the dominion of this earth to Satan because God had given it to us. But in our fall, we relinquished that dominion and we gave it to Satan. That's why Satan was able to tempt Jesus the way he did and says, I will give you all of this if you simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no way, it ain't happening. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded and was able to become the Savior that he is. But it also means victory. When a king returns on a white horse, it means that victory is his. And then he goes on to describe, the very first description is faithful and true. Throughout the Bible, God wants us to realize and to know his that He is faithful to us. Whatever He has promised to us, He is able to perform, and He's willing to perform. All things are yes. His faithfulness is demonstrated in His steadfast love for us. That though, even though we fail and we make mistakes and we fall and we, we do things that we are embarrassed of, God doesn't fail us. He's always there. He never leaves us, He never forsakes us, and His promises are still available to us. But faithfulness is governed by, in Him by truth. And in a world saturated with lies and deception, that truth will go forward to steady you in a very insecure time of life. We as Christians now more than ever need to be in God's Word for the simple purpose of settling ourselves and standing firm upon the rock who is Christ. 
when we are confused and we are challenged to believe any of the institutions around us any longer, we can always believe Christ and trust Him. And in His return, His faithfulness and His true, Him being true is once and for all established and is recognized as is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But in His second coming, that truth now is going to be established here on this earth. In a world today that continuously tells us that absolute truth doesn't exist. The truth is just, you know, it's, it's you know, relative. It, whatever you feel your truth is, is perfectly acceptable. You see, truth is no longer based upon fact in our society. Truth is based more on feeling. And how do people discover truth? Well, it's not by believing certain facts about life, society, history, etc. It is by personal experience. So my truth is gained through the personal experiences that I have. This is the philosophy that many live by and Oh, I would say most live by today. That my truth is absolutely governed and created by my personal experiences. Have you ever heard someone say to you after you've given them a piece of wisdom, maybe quote-unquote your children, hey, learn from my mistakes. Don't repeat my failures. And they come back to you with the brilliant wisdom of, Well, I have to learn that for myself, right? I think I'm hitting a chord with many people there. But that's exactly the way they are geared to think. They won't learn from your wisdom. They have to learn it for themselves. And it's it's a shame how much they could simply be spared from if they would just learn from our mistakes, right? Right? Hey, don't repeat our mistakes. That's exactly why Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He didn't want his children to repeat the same mistakes that he made. He didn't want them to fall in the same pitfalls that he fell into. But yet today, truth is based upon personal experience. And that's why you see so many trying to experience as much as they possibly can here in this life. But the Bible is given to you and I for the purpose of learning, not only from the successes, but more importantly, the failures of those recorded within it. So we don't repeat those same mistakes. Because with those mistakes, it isn't just that we, could, we make a mistake, those mistakes always carry with them consequences, don't they? And those consequences can be life-shattering. Those consequences can be life-altering. Just one mistake... One decision can change the course of your life forever. And if we can learn from the mistake of others so we don't make those same mistakes today and therefore are spared the consequences that those mistakes uh, reap upon us, then why shouldn't we? That's why truth is so important. And when someone says to you, there isn't absolute truth in our life, in our world anymore, ask them, are they sure of that? And they'll say, absolutely. And you've won the argument and you can go to Starbucks. Because there is absolutes. There are absolutes. Those absolutes will be established in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, he makes, he judges and makes war. One of the great downfalls of any society, you know a society is decaying and coming to an end when its judicial system is so corrupted that justice is no longer administered. If you go back throughout history and look at the various empires that you know, controlled the world, their decline always began with the saturated corruption of their judicial institutions. Politicians have always been corrupted, right? From the very beginning. But when the judicial system becomes corrupted is when you should be very concerned about the health of the society in which you live. Unfortunately, we see that happening here in the United States, don't we? 
where individuals who have committed crimes are being released without bail. They're no longer being sentenced appropriately. And recently, we just saw the sentencing of Jesse Smoltz, haven't we? And as a result, there's an outcry saying that the sentence that he was given, 150 days or whatever, five months, was simply revenge. Really? He lied. He created a fake hate crime for publicity purposes. He wasted taxpayers' money. He tried to throw a political candidate in a a shadow on a political candidate by this event, and five months in prison is too much? Really? And I think it's very interesting that the Chicago Tribune focused more on Kim Fox's reply rather than the sentencing, saying that it was revenge, that this was wrong, it it wasn't justice. And now we see justice being administered on the basis of skin color, don't we? We should be very concerned by this. We should be concerned that very, very significant decisions and directions for our countries are all coming down to the Supreme Court and the nine individuals who sit upon it. It's very concerning that we have gotten to this point. But when Jesus returns... This corruption will be dealt with. He will judge righteously, in purity, according to God's heart and will, with all information necessary. It will be righteous in the manner in which he judges and makes war when he returns. Notice in verse 12, it describes his eyes in a very interesting way. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. The description of his eyes, meaning God sees what we don't. God sees the depth of corruption. And individuals and institutions and such who think they're getting away with it here and now will be held accountable by God himself. And for the Jewish people, this was incredibly important. And it should be important to us also. That God sees what we don't see. I'm concerned just by what we see. Can you imagine being overwhelmed by what we don't see? But when he judges, he will judge according to all that has been done. Again, this is, over, this is emphasized again over in Revelation chapter 20. When the books are opened and each individual will stand before him. And then it says that there were on his head many crowns, meaning that he is the supreme authority over every governmental institution in the world, that he himself is sovereign and that there is no one above him. There is no one to coerce him, to corrupt him. He is the final authority in all things. And then there is this interesting thing. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, there are two possible explanations of what this means. Number one, the name of an individual in Judaism always revealed that person's character. Jacob, you know, uh, Isaac. There was parts of their character that were found in their name, Esau, etc. But then we come to Jesus Christ and this name isn't known. That the depth of his character and understanding, because he is God, is very possibly unknowable to us who are finite. That's one plausible explanation. There was another explanation that would have been very um, understood at that time, and that is that once you knew the name of a spiritual being, you had authority over that spiritual being. This is where some in hyper-charismatic circles believe that to to cast out a demon... You need to know that demon's name, and then you have authority over that demon, and you can cast that demon out because, of course, that's what Jesus did when he found uh, Legion, you know, that man possessed by many in the cemetery. That's the only example that we have of that. I personally don't need to know the name of the demon. Just get out of here, right? I, I don't have any desire to talk to Satan or demons. But in that culture, it was something 
that they held to. It was a common belief. And so it is possible that by not knowing his name, it again emphasizes the idea that no human has authority over him. Two possibilities for your consideration. And then his description continues with his robes dipped in blood. Notice with me. And his clothed, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is a reference to Isaiah 63, 2 and 3. Notice with me. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one's ways was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger. I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Finally, the enemies of God are dealt with at the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are dealt with in righteousness, but the fury and the wrath of God is poured out at this time. And then John writes, he says, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, notice with me, John writing Revelation, of course, writing the Gospel of John, established that Jesus' identity as the Word of God, the Word of God came and was with God, and before the foundations of the world was God, and then that Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Now John is reiterating that point, that Jesus Christ is the culmination of every heart expression of God the Father. Every thought, every characteristic is perfectly uh, represented in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is God. And he is able, therefore, to express it. He said it this way, so simply, to his disciples. When they begged to see the Father, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so all that the Word of God from the very beginning had promised is now being completed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything is being completed in Him from creation to consummation. And in verse 14, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white, clean, followed Him on a white horse. That's us, folks. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Of course, this is referring to the word of God. And with it, he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That takes place in the millennial kingdom. And he himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. We as Christians get so fascinated with the signs of his coming. We spend hours watching the amazing wisdom of YouTube, looking for various elements of world events that would tell us that we are closer to the return of Christ than we have ever been before. And yet, it is in the return of Christ that we should be the most concentrated. It should be, that's where we should be focused, in knowing what He brings with Him in His second coming. Because He's going to make all things right. We can try to right the wrongs of this world, and we should try. We should try to slow the decay, the moral decay of our society. Standing up and saying, no, that isn't right. Standing up and saying, enough is enough. Making our voices heard in arenas where we are invited to do so. And even to protest peacefully when that protest is needed. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to retard the and to... Uh, slow the decay of our society we should in all ways but we know that it isn't until the full coming of Jesus Christ that all things will be made right and as we are occupied with our father's business in this time and I want to encourage you 
though certain things may be letting up and, and certain mandates are being lifted, we can't take our foot off the gas pedal now because there are still so many battles yet to fight. It's incredible to me to see the American people when they get mobilized in the right direction. It was amazing to watch parents go before school boards and to make their voices known. Some of the most articulate uh, rebuttals. Just incredible how well thought out these things were. It was devastating the reaction of certain school boards feeling that they should never be questioned or they could never take uh, uh, criticism from parents. Some schools believing that the education of parents' children should be the school's responsibility and taken out of the hands of the parents. Things are moving in a very wrong direction in many ways. My wife is a preschool teacher. She has been now for 17 going on 18 years. And in this last year, her private school in which she teaches at, their enrollment has increased exponentially because of a lot of the frustrations of the schools in that area. Uh, I should say the frustrations of the parents uh, towards the schools in that area. But she was recently discussing with her uh, director of the preschool department because their preschool has a very high enrollment already for next year. And the director was sharing with her that some of the decisions the public school in our area, in the Palatine area, have made. And apparently there is a school in that area who has adopted the idea that to allow kids to identify themselves as furries, coming to school as little animals. Now you say, well, well, okay, so what's the deal if they put on little makeup and wear little furry ears and so forth? Well, the school apparently has gone as far as to place litter boxes in the bathrooms. This isn't education anymore. This is indoctrination. Now, I'm not saying all of them did that, but one of them has, apparently. We need to say something. We can't be silent anymore. Because I, the direction that these kids are being led is, is not the direction that God would have them to go. We need to say things. Now, I'm going to share something with you that's been on my heart. Over the last 15 years, I've seen Christians retreat from society into the subculture of Christianity, saying we don't want any part of that world. We don't want to influence that world. We just want to create our own little world here and now. But that's not what God would have us to do. God would have us engage with people. We've been given the opportunity to express our voice in this country. And people may not like what we say, but you know what? If we don't say something, we're going to be invaded by furries. This is the rationale. This is the rationale that we are facing. These are your tax dollars. And I think we all know that we pay quite an exorbitant rate here in Illinois, don't we? Enough's enough, okay? Nobody is going to sit across the table from me and explain to me the necessity of furries. Nobody is. We have to stand up. We have to let our voices be made known as Christians, governed by our Christian values, Engaging with people tactfully, carefully, not losing our cool. The laying on of hands is not beating somebody up for a cause. We need to take this opportunity to say enough's enough. But ultimately, let us understand that all things will not be made right until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, we see that the wrath of God is real and will be poured out upon an unbelieving world. And I don't know about you, but I don't wish that on my worst enemy. I don't. 
Now is the opportunity also to make your voice known more importantly and first and foremost for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Taking the opportunity to share with friends and family who don't know the Lord the gospel of Jesus. In hopes that they too would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not a sprint, it is a marathon. It may take years. And those individuals that you only have those individual or independent encounters with, you may feel like you're not making an impact, but please know and understand that you may be one planting seeds in their life. You may be one watering those seeds, and maybe later someone will come and reap those seeds because it's God who gives the harvest. We just must be faithful of the sharing of the gospel, and that's why we're doing what we're doing on Wednesday. But where are you today with God? Do you know for sure that if anything were to happen to you, that you would leave this earth and go to heaven? Because God has brought you here today for this purpose. Maybe you've been distant from God. Now it's time to come back. Like the prodigal son realizing that as he was returning home, his father ran to him undoubtedly because his father was looking and waiting for him. So is God waiting for you to come back. Maybe you don't know the Lord, and maybe today is the day. For the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can simply cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me. And the healing and the restoration that he will bring in his second coming can begin today in your life. That healing, that restoration to make you whole again as a person. That can begin now. I'm not going to say that your circumstances are going to get easy and everything's going to be rosy and the song of the day is zippity doo da. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that God will begin a work inside of you that he will be faithful to complete. And that hole in your heart, that void, that emptiness will be filled once and for all. You just need to reach out to him today. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. The Bible says that when that occurs, all of the angels in heaven rejoice. That's something to rejoice about. And though we see that the world is now agonizing as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, And it would be easy to collapse under the weight of all the existential crises that are taking place around us. As Christians, we have the blessed hope knowing that all of these things are but birth pangs to the return of Jesus. And soon and very soon, He is coming back and He will make things all right again.